Well, amen. Thank you very, very much. I'm sure the response to uh, Sarah's singing tonight just speaks uh, exactly how I expected Southwest Baptist to do. And uh, it's, uh, she didn't get in all the words, but she didn't get the message. I got it. And um, yeah, Brother Gaddis couldn't help her. Not only can he not sing, <laughs> but the emotional part too. And I can barely make it through most of our congregational songs without having emotional issues. And I don't want it to be any different than that, to tell you the truth. And uh, boy, uh, that blessed my heart just immensely. So thank you, Pastor, for the opportunity to uh, preach tonight. I've been looking forward. It should be so easy. Uh, I mean, I've got thousands of sermons uh, that I've preached over the years. I love this church. I love being here. It's one sermon. This should be a piece of cake. I can't believe the struggle I've had trying to decide and uh, work on a sermon. I've started uh, a couple of Psalms. I started writing down my homiletical sheet, you know, studying that passage and it wasn't there. And I went here and there to new and old and such as that. So if you're thinking, hey, he's not going to preach. Well, I'm going to try. I mean, that's what I'm going to try to do. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles here in just a second. Before that, I wanted to say about uh, Miss Geneva McCracken and to her family. I know many of you are praying for them. And, and uh, I, I don't, I just, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that it was nine years ago today that my mom, died. And my mom and Geneva McCracken were probably different in many, many ways. I'm sure they were. Uh, but they were also alike in many, many ways. And um, I, I just uh, had communicated a little bit with the family by text and just uh, let them know that you didn't have to be around at Geneva McCracken for five minutes to know this is the right kind of woman. This is a godly woman right here. And I'm sure the kids could tell stories about discipline times and uh, correction from Miss Geneva when maybe the image in their mind from the exercise like my mom, sweet, quiet, but could she be tough when she needed to be tough? Oh yeah, absolutely. And so I'm sure she had those kind of moments too. How would you raise nine or 12 or 13 kids, however many they had, uh, without being a tough mama? I mean, that's quite a task. But she was a wonderful lady. And uh, my family today, my siblings, there's five of us left. I have a sister that's already passed about 12 years ago. And our family was kind of uh, communicating this afternoon about uh, mom passing away nine years ago today. And so in the midst of that, reading their communication, I text and said that I wanted to thank them again, my siblings, for allowing me to trusting me to preach my mom's funeral because I counted in all the preaching that I've tried to do over the years, I count that just right there with a great honor to preach my mom's funeral. My oldest sister, who just turned 88 recently, uh, she texted me back and said that uh, there's a certain man in town that all of our family knew that his granddaughter was at my mom's funeral. And she was there because of some of the friendship of some of the people in our family. And she told my oldest sister, she said, um, I did not know your mother. I never, I came to the service, to the funeral service, but I did not know her. But by the time I left, I loved her. And I thought, well, what a testimony. Well, I'm thankful that I presented it in such a way, but what a testimony of uh, a woman's own children that people that would be total strangers would have a, a love or affection for them. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, that's how we need to preach Christ because not everybody that comes in these doors knows him. And if they would have been here this morning, they would know him or know of him and the great love. Thanks for the message this morning, pastor. It's just absolutely wonderful. And I appreciate it. All right, we're going to turn in our Bibles tonight <clears throat> to the book of Hebrews in chapter number 10. The book of Hebrews in chapter 10. And I need you also to find Matthew and chapter number 24. So I uh, have it ready there, Matthew chapter 24. 
As a matter of fact, let's just go there right now and we can read just a couple of verses here and then we'll only have to make reference. We won't be turning back. Let's just do that while you're standing. Look in Matthew chapter 24. And so verse number one of Matthew 24, and then we're going to be preaching tonight out of the book of Hebrews in chapter number 10. And 24.1 says of Matthew, and Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. So they, I don't know what all is here, but for some reason they thought there was something they might be able to help him with, with the temple uh, and to show him the buildings of the temple. Well, Jesus took over as he's known to do and said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down, which had to be startling, astounding words to the disciples. We might just read past it and not think about it. I guarantee you they were thinking about it. And verse 3 said, And as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him, privately saying, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now I guarantee you, Jesus' words in verse number two got their attention and that uh, induced the questions that came from them in verse number three. And they asked three things. When shall these things be? What he just told them about the destruction of the temple. What shall be the sign of thy coming? We'll say a little more about that in a little bit. And of the end of the world, the consummation of things. Now, go to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Keep that in mind. What we just read, and you won't need to... Um, Mark your Bible or we're not going to turn back there. We'll just reference it. So look in verse number 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Having therefore brethren. Now Paul is writing in, in this particular section, not only in relation to Hebrews, Jews, that would be brethren after the flesh, but he is obviously addressing the believer. Having therefore brethren, boldness, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Now, I just have to pause and say that there is a reason that he would say, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, because if you consider the entirety of this uh, general epistle that we know as the book of Hebrews, then you would understand that there were Hebrew believers that were struggling mightily to uh, keep their commitment to follow Jesus Christ because of the opposition and the persecution that was coming their way. And so some were wavering and some were staggering and some were wondering, should I continue to follow Jesus? Is it going to be worth the price I'm going to pay to follow Jesus? And Paul is exhorting them and encouraging them. In verse number 23, he put it this way again, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering for he is faithful that promised. Don't you back up one step. Amen. Verse 24, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Let's look at that uh, last part of verse 25 again. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Our Father, we are grateful for this time together. And we thank you, Lord, for 
your goodness and your mercies, and we pray that you would add your blessings now to this time together in the Word. And I want to thank you for Sarah standing here tonight and uh, actually bearing her heart as she attempted to sing of her love for you. And certainly as we heard the preaching this morning of how you expressed your love to us, we are mindful that folks may question sometimes your ways. Some may question your timing. But no one can look at the cross and question your love to us. And I thank you, O oh God, for that love of which she sang tonight. And the music this morning and tonight has been wonderful and uh, provoking and encouraging and helping, O oh God. We're very thankful for it. Now bless this time together in the Word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work and that you'd make this a profitable time for every individual, yes, but also in the life of this assembly, this congregation, this flock, this church. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give unction and direction and work in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. God bless. Thank you. you may be seated. If a future day or event truly evokes anticipation, it will surely affect, even alter, behavior in the days leading up to that event. Now that's a mouthful, and I wrote it down so hopefully it makes sense. And I'm going to repeat it again. If a future day or event truly evokes anticipation, it will surely affect, even alter behavior in the days leading up to the big day or the big event. I got to thinking about big days and my mind is flooded with big days that I've known in my life and you could do the same thing in your life. Anticipating graduation. Yeah, that was a great time. Uh, a fired up time. Anticipating marriage. Sandra was my girlfriend for three and a half years. And as the days got closer and closer, I lost my mind. I wasn't a good worker. I was having all kinds of difficulties. I was just anticipating this marriage that we was going to, about to enter into. Sports. I remember when certain teams out of this state would be playing for significant championships, either conference or national or what it'd be. And I was so excited about it. I remember thinking about, ah, oh, man, the time's just dragging on. Let's get there. I can remember that on some election days, some that have to do with the left and some that have to do with the right. But I remember thinking about anticipation like that. But mostly the days came as a pastor thinking about the days all the way back to Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater. In fact, when I was an associate across town, a vacation Bible school was a huge event every year. It was every year. I remember the first year that Sandra and I were there in the year of 1967, we moved in about two weeks before vacation Bible school and went to that vacation Bible school to work among 1,500 children that rode buses to vacation Bible school. And she and I had no clue what was going on. I mean, it was an incredible event, but I saw what, how it could be and how that Bible school was used and therefore for the years following, even when I came here, I was all about vacation Bible school. And I just remember the hype, the buildup, the anticipation of vacation Bible school. And it kind of dominated the thinking and everything. It, it affects you if you're truly anticipating that day. Friend day. Oh man, I remember friend days. I remember the year, I think it was 2001, when we set a record attendance uh, here at friend day, had 60, 70 people saved on the church campus here. All kinds of wonderful, exciting things happened. And friend day, I don't know, I anticipated that over and over again. Never forget in 1993, when we hosted a national fellowship meeting here. Uh, the first experience that, uh, that the church or I had had 
in hosting a fellowship meeting on a national level where actually hundreds of pastors came uh, to the meeting. And I remember the work of the people and I remember the meetings that we had for one solid year in preparation. I just remember the anticipation that was coming for that great event. 1993 is a long time ago, but I'll never forget it as long as I live. And my wife and I have been looking at some pictures she has and showing me some of the pictures, going through ministry box of pictures and just seeing some of the big events, some of the big days. And I'm just going to say again that if a future event truly evokes anticipation, then it is going to have an effect upon our behavior. And we're going to talk tonight about an event that I'm afraid many people uh, know is going to take place but somehow the anticipation that changes behavior is just not there. But it should be there. It should be there. Now, <clears throat> we were in Matthew chapter 24. And um, the uh, disciples uh, said to Jesus, let us show you the buildings of the temple. And uh, so as they were, however they would go about that, showing him the buildings of the temple, Jesus said, well, let me tell you something. That the days are going to come when there will not be one stone uh, less standing upon another in this temple. Now they were in awe of the architecture. They were in awe of the building itself. And it was, according to what we know from history, a magnificent structure, no doubt about that. And so while they are impressed with all of that and probably had their own ideas about how this place played into the future, Jesus said, I will tell you this right now, that the day is coming when this building is going to be destroyed to the degree that there will not be one stone left standing upon another. And the disciples were astounded at that. And then that leads us into what we know as the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus' own teaching on prophecy. And the way it got started sort of takes us back to the Sermon on the Mount when the disciples came unto him and he sat and taught them saying. And now we have the same thing. Jesus was teaching them in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount what it meant to be a disciple. And now he's going to give them his own teaching on the matter of future events or what we would call prophecy. And so Jesus says to these disciples that the day is going to come when this building will not be left standing and, uh, and that uh, there will not be one stone left standing upon another. And he goes on in the text to indicate that they would see this, that there would be, uh, uh, the indication is that they, this would happen in their lifetime. They would observe this. It would happen while they were there. And so uh, that was the teaching that Jesus gave. Now, if, if you just go from there and fast forward 30 plus years, then what you have is the year of about 64 to 68 AD, somewhere in there. Probably the earliest days that, uh, that time that the book of Hebrews would have been written would have been around 64 uh, AD. And about the latest would have been about 68 A.D. Well, by that time, the temple was still standing. Uh, the worship at the temple, the sacrifices, the offerings, all of that, that had not been stopped. It continued to go on at the temple. And so Jesus made this prophecy. Now time rolls on a decade and another decade and another decade and time goes on and the building is still standing. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think, though, do you think the idea that Jesus presented there, that the, that the uh, temple would be destroyed, do you really believe that that escaped their mind, that they forgot all about it, they quit thinking about it? Now, I have no idea that they anticipated it and they understood that it was going to happen. And the apostle, Paul, at least I reference him as the author of the book of Hebrews. If somebody else does it different, that's fine. We can still have fellowship. But I, I believe that the apostle Paul was the human author. And in as much as, or if he was, he is writing here and he is giving them instruction and he gives them instruction uh, and reminds them that there is a certain day approaching. Now, what day might he be talking about that was still approaching? Somebody says, well, the Apostle Paul taught about the coming of Jesus Christ in the rapture, and probably he was talking about the coming in the, uh, of the rapture. Well, I'm going to suggest to you tonight that there was an event that must happen 
before that could take place that Jesus said would take place and that would be the destruction of the temple. Now, what you have to understand is to these Hebrew believers who were hated by Rome because they were Hebrews, two-edged sword, hated because they were not only Hebrews, but believers of this Jesus of Nazareth and followers of Christ. And so they were hated on that account as well. And so you have these, these uh, people that are Hebrew and believers and they're uh, experiencing the pressures of persecution coming against them. And it is only going to increase. And Paul is writing them and he's trying to encourage them. Don't you back up. Uh, you be steadfast and don't you waver. And he says, we are not of them. Later on in chapter number 10, he says, we are not of them that turn back. And so he's exhorting them, yet a little while, he that shall come will come. And so he is telling them about the promises of God in verse 23. And he is saying to them, stay true, stay true, stay true, stay true. Because the day is approaching. See, what day approaching? Well, no doubt he had reference to 70 AD. When the Romans came in under the leadership of Titus and destroyed the city of Jerusalem scattered the people, slaughtered many, tore down the walls, burnt the city, uh, uh, tore down the temple so that according to some in history, they said that by the time they had finished their ruthless destruction in Jerusalem, that there was not one stone left standing upon another. And there are those that would say, wow, that's amazing. That's what Jesus said would happen. Well, no, it would have been amazing if it hadn't happened. If Jesus said it, take it to the bank. Come on, somebody help me here. And so they said that the temple was destroyed. And so that day that was approaching, Paul said, it would come. Now, let's say that he did write this about 67, 68 AD. He is saying to them, don't you quit now. He goes on to encourage them and says, you've already been through a lot. Don't throw away what you've already done. And don't turn your back on following Jesus. You continue to follow him because this day is approaching. And maybe two to three years later, Four at the most, it came. 70 AD, Jerusalem was destroyed. The Jews were under genuine persecution. Many slaughtered, believers persecuted and martyred some. So I'm of the persuasion. That's what he was talking about here in Hebrews 10. So what are we going to do now? Dismiss? No, because there is a day yet approaching. I was hoping there'd be an amen button right there because we understand, don't we? That there is a day that is approaching. Now, what I want to do is look here in the days of the apostle Paul and having considered the day approaching that they were anticipating I wonder what he would say to us. I mean, I know what he says to us all, all through the, his writings, but I'm just saying, based upon this text, I wonder, is he saying the same thing to us who as believers in this day and in this time, nigh unto 2,000 years later, is there any advice here that he has for us as we say, uh, see the day approaching? Now, the day that is approaching needs no other signs to be fulfilled and come to pass. Uh, there is not a sign that has to be fulfilled before Jesus comes and takes us out of here and we go to meet him in the air. Somebody has said, what do you do with those who say the word rapture isn't even in the Bible? I don't do anything with them because the meaning of it is there that we are going to be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now, we are not looking for signs of that event. What we are doing is looking for the event itself. And there are many that are living their life as though things are just going to go on and on and on and on. I'll go to church. I'll go to work. I'll go home. And they act like this event is not a reality that it's not going to take place. Well, it is going to take place 
And it is supposed to be anticipated in such a way that it affects our behavior. And in the case of some, alters their behavior. See. <clears throat> so what is the advice he gives? What is the counsel that he gives based on the fact that this day is approaching? It matters. It matters to a church. Sure, it matters to my individual life, your individual life. But my life is to be lived out in the context of a New Testament church. So is yours. So what we're saying here has, uh, is going to have to do with every believer, but as it relates to the church. That's why he said, and forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. So this is to be carried out in a local church context. I've read some weird stuff about people that try to take the church out of this, like this assembling together really didn't have anything to do with church life. Well, I couldn't disagree more. It has everything to do with church life. Just because the word church isn't used there, the assembling is, and that's why there is a church here. I said, that's why the first business of any church is to assemble. That's what the word means. And so all of this is to be carried out. So what is the advice he gives? In other words, uh, they were anticipating that day where Jesus said the temple is going to be destroyed. And under Titus and the Roman army, it was destroyed. And so now there is yet a day approaching. And that is the imminent return of Jesus Christ when he will come to receive us out of here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm so fighting the temptation to go to 1 Thessalonians, uh, uh, Thessalonians 4, to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, to go to the passages that have to do with the return of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to fight that off because it is a given and a reality in the Word of God. Jesus is coming. Now, what are we supposed to do? I can remember the day when men were predicting the time when Jesus would come. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. So I remember that people figured out that uh, Israel became a nation again, 1948. A generation is 40 years. This generation shall not pass. And there were preachers, even among our own ranks, there were preachers that predicted 1988 was when Jesus is coming again. And I mean, it was amazing. The books that were sold, the hubbub that was made about that because it's going to be in the year of 1988, which came and went. And we're still here. I'm not necessarily uh, gloating about that. It'd been fine to go in 1988. But nobody's going to tell God when his son is coming when he said, no man knows. So that means no man knows. <laughs> and, and so there, then there were others. And I can remember the time in the 70s, some of you can as well. In the 70s and 80s, I mean, prophecy, thing, prophecy meetings were the big thing. Uh, in, in the early days of uh, cable television, when all the programs got on cable television, uh, prophecy programs were huge. They were big. Thousands of books were sold. Here's the thing about going down a specific pig trail instead of uh, preaching the whole counsel of God. That when you uh, follow all the signs that are indicating that we are near the coming of Jesus Christ and then it doesn't happen, well, you got to keep the sales going and you got to keep the anticipation up. And so you got to get more and more spectacular, which becomes farther and farther from biblical truth until you have a bunch of nonsense out there having to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. If you listen to the lessons in the book of Jude, you'll see that some of the false teaching had to do, has had to do in our time with the, with the prophecy. So what are we supposed to do? Well, he says right there in verse 24 and 25. Uh, and and I, I always outline, but you can't always find my outline as I preach it. But this is right here. You can't miss it. I mean, it's, it's right here. So here's what they were to do as they saw the day approaching. And no doubt it lives in the word of God to speak to us because this is what we ought to do as we see the day approaching. That is the coming of Jesus. That's the next event on God's calendar. The rapture is the next event. Well, I've heard, read those that believe in post-trib, mid-trib, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, let me repeat. 
the next event is the coming of Jesus Christ in the rapture on God's calendar. So here's what we ought to do. Let's follow his advice, shall we? Look in verse 24. And let us consider one another. Now stop right there. He begins by saying, as you see the day approaching, here is the counsel, here is the advice. Let us consider one another. <laughs> now I can just hear, let me look around. Okay, so nobody here, but I can see where some people would say, well, I mean, if we're supposed to anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ and you're beginning with, let us consider one another, uh, Brother Sam, uh, that's not very deep. Well, if you want to go deep, study the book of Hebrews. Paul can take you deep. I said he can take you deep. He can take you, he can drown you. As a matter of fact. And study the book of Hebrews. Study the book of Romans. You want to go deep. But he's not interested in going deep here, except this is deep. Because it tells us, tells us what we are supposed to be doing as we see the day approaching. As we anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. In context of the church life, here's what he said to do. Consider one another. Now, Pastor, I couldn't help but think about what... Uh, this might have to do with what you preached this morning out of the book of 1 John and about the matter of us loving one another. I was talking to the pastor before church and I thanked him for the message and, and uh, I think that's a, a great theme. And I told him, I can't tell you how many times as I've read through the New Testament that I've thought to myself that the uh, preaching about brotherly love, that's a biblical term, brotherly love, the amount of preaching about brotherly love in our time, I'm guilty, I'm quite sure, uh, that the preaching about brotherly love is not commensurate to the amount of times that we are challenged with it in the New Testament. It's just over and over and over. I'm saying by Jesus, by Jesus teaching his disciples, and uh, in the book of Acts, as it was manifest and they were challenged. And as you read through the scripture in the New Testament, you'll see that it is there over and over and over. And then the book of 1 John, you really get a big dose of it. But I'm just saying that over and over in this mention, this matter of considering one another. Now, let's think about that for just a minute. Consider, watch, to see, perceive, understand, take note of. To understand, see, take note of. In light of this passage, I was talking to my wife the other day. And uh, we were being reminded of how in early days of our marriage, and early days of ministry, <clears throat> I had this incredible gift, I thought. And that is to know what kind of people some people were and never knew them. But I still knew. Some of you may have had that problem along the way. Yep. How did I know them? Then, here's what we were talking about. Then, after I'd passed judgment on a preacher I didn't know, or an individual that I didn't know. Then I had occasion to be with them, excuse me, know them, consider them, perceive where they came from, how they got where they are. Then I would have to go confess to my wife. Yeah, that's, that's really a neat guy. That, that is a true man of God. Well, I thought you said, hush woman, what are you doing? How come you can't remember other things that I tell you, but you can remember things like this, you know? Is everybody with me here? 
And did you know that that's not just true of people that we may observe from a distance. That can be true of some of the people that are sitting in this section regarding somebody in that section and somebody else. It could even be true concerning a young lady standing up here and singing just a moment ago. Now, if you're going to stand up there and sing, don't you think she ought to be able to finish the song? Somebody might say, I, I don't think that's the attitude of this church at all, but somebody might have that attitude and say, well, don't you think this and don't you think that? Uh, do you know, Sarah? Do you know where she came from? Do you, know, do you know what it means for her to be here in church all the time or to be a student at Heartland Baptist Bible College given the journey that she's had? And once you understand those kind of things, isn't it amazing how we all of a sudden can change our attitude and change our thinking? You know what the Apostle Paul is saying? As you see the day approaching, this matter of brotherly love is very, very important. And what you're supposed to be giving attention to do is consider one another because I wonder how we think our testimony is going to be so great before an unbelieving world when we don't even know how to treat our own brothers and sisters that we go to church with. See, so brethren, as you anticipate Jesus coming again, consider one another. Just have common consideration, perceive and understand and know them. Uh, it'd be good if old people would try to understand young people. Now, uh, you know, in this, uh, I mean, I just turned 76 back in August. And so I'm of this generation that I can see the sunset uh, on the <laughs> close horizon here that is coming. So I'm just saying now, young people today. Well, uh, I can just tell you right now that there are some things that young people face today that have been common to all young people everywhere. And many of them act like we're the first generation to ever experience anything like that. And there are also some young people today that have never known the America that I was raised in. They never knew that. And uh, some of them have never uh, understood nor known the kind of upbringing. We take young people to camp. I'm very, very thankful for that. But I'm just saying, I think maybe that the level of expectation and the level of communication uh, back in the day when I was growing up and going to camp and going to church and, and there are young people that grow up in churches today that their parents haven't become committed. And so why do we expect them to be committed and such as that? I, I'm just saying that there are times you just got to stop and think. I see where some of these young people are. Yes, I'd like to see them farther ahead than where they are, but also might be helped uh, to know how to deal with them and help them and encourage them and pray for them if I take just a little time to understand where have they been? What is their journey? Talking about bus kids. Well, I'll never forget uh, Matt. Matt's pastoring in Iowa. Um, he was uh, coerced into coming on a bus to Sunday school in his teenage years. And uh, so... Uh, he's been pastoring in Iowa for several years. And I, re I remember sitting down with Matt and he's talking to me about the town that he's in, the kind of struggles that he's had in that church and such as that. So here I am. I've already passed through my years, 36 years of pastor, 43 years of ministry and out on the road traveling. This is a few years ago when I'd maybe been uh, free from the pastor for only about three years. And I'm there with Matt. And Matt started talking to me about some of the things about pastoring and such as this. And I'm about to get aggravated with him. I love the way some of you just look and think, why you? Well, I'm about to make a confession, so hang on. And, and so I was about to get aggravated with him. And then it came to me. If I consider where Matt has been, how amazing it is that when he got saved as a junior in high school, by the time I was a junior in high school, I'd surrendered to preach. I mean, I had no reason for not having some understanding and, and having some experience behind me and trying to walk with the Lord. My soul, I was made to go to church. He never was. I, I was shown the Christian life in my home. He didn't have that. 
I'm just, I'm just talking about take time to consider. And you look around here and it may be somebody that you've had some kind of conflict with. It may be somebody that has uh, dealt with your children, you thought, harshly in, in a Sunday school class or unfairly in a Sunday school class. And you mess with my children, you're messing with me. Back off just a little bit. You might just take time to consider that not everybody is as wise as you are. Not everybody has that gift like you have to know people before you know them. I know what it is to live that life and to go down that journey. And it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace. It's anything but a Christian way. There's no excuse for that. There's no reason for that kind of behavior. And take time. And it'd be good if, old, if young people that are sitting right here, if you would look at people of my generation and between my generation and yours, if you'd look at them and just try to remember, they may know some things I don't know. If you just stop and consider once in a while that they're not saying don't do this and don't do that just because they're negative and just because they don't want anybody having a good time and just because they think everybody's supposed to be perfect all the time. No, but you might just stop and consider that the, the fact that they had to learn some lessons the hard way and they might lack in some skill in communicating it at times, but they may just be trying to help you. You might consider these people may not hate me. They may actually love me and care for my life. Just kind of remember those things. Basically, it just means consider this. Uh, how would you like a pastor that never considered the life of the flock? I remember pastor in Stillwater uh, years ago, and we had just moved into our new auditorium, so it was about 1980 uh, there. And I remember one night, I still lived on the church property, and I had to walk a grand total of about 40 yards to get to church. And uh, so it's a Wednesday night and it's seven o'clock and we're starting the seven o'clock service. And I noticed that as we're on the second verse and the third verse, people are still coming in, shuffling around, moving and getting in their pew. And I'm just thinking, this is ridiculous. I mean, I'm sitting right over here uh, at that church. That's where I sat. And I'm sitting over there thinking this is ridiculous. So after the song service, praising the Lord, praising the Lord, I let them have it. I mean, I let them have it. I told them, I said this, we're doing the work of God here. This isn't like going to a play or going to a movie or something like this. This is the house of God. You ought to be at the church on time. And I just let them have it. I did. I just cleaned their clock. And you ought to be here on time. This is ridiculous. People coming here during the song service. How's this song supposed to mean anything? Nobody can pay attention because they're moving for you and watching you walk around. You need to get here and be here on time. And anyway, then we had a special before I would get up and then preach. So I'm sitting over there. And this came from somewhere. I don't think it came from the devil or my flesh or the world. Just by a simple process of elimination, I'm almost sure it was the Lord that spoke in my heart. And I sat there thinking, aren't you something? You've had this whole day to prepare to be here tonight. You walked 40, maybe 45 yards to come to church. Some of these people just got off of work and didn't even have time to go home and change clothes. And they're doing the best they can do to be here and you're ripping their face off. Good job. Way to go. I'm sitting there. I don't have any idea who was singing. I don't have any idea what the song is about. I'm sitting there thinking... I'm an idiot. I know you shouldn't use that word, but I was. I'm just, oh man, this is ridiculous. So before I could get up and preach, I had to get up and say, I just want you to know that what I told you a while ago was in the flesh. I thank God you're here. Some of you could have used an excuse to go right from work and go home and never show up at church tonight and here you are. And I gave you a chewing out. I'm looking at Jenny Knowles sitting there because she might've been one of them that came in late that night. <laughs> And so might Donna Kosher sitting back there have been one of those. Yeah. Consider one another. How hard is this? Well, this isn't very deep. Are you really ready for something deeper if we're not practicing stuff like this? We're ready for things deeper than this if we're not practicing this? Just take time to consider and look at the next thing. He says, and to provoke unto love and good works. To provoke unto love and to good works. Now, to provoke unto love, heard about that this morning, selflessness. Somebody say amen. amen. I, I don't have time to stop and preach on it a long time. It has to do with selflessness. 
Uh, giving to another, I wrote down the definition, seeking another's good at one's own cost, as it was defined, uh, a quote that he made from Mr. Stott this morning. And so there, there you have it. That, that's what it is. It has to do with selfless. Provoke unto love. Provoke unto things uh, that produce and, and motivate to loving action, selfless conduct, selfless action, selfless giving, and good works, good works. Works that have to do with the things of God. Good works in the Bible is not going down and putting some new benches in the park or building a ball field. I'm not against ball fields or parks or benches. I'm not against any of that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that's not what the Bible would consider good works. It has to do with advancing the cause of Christ, advancing the kingdom of God, doing things that advance the purpose for which we are here as a child of God. See? So he says to provoke unto love and to good works. Now that provoke is an interesting word. Provoke, to spur on, stimulate, incite, stir up, even irritate. <laughs> if all we did is give the term irritate, somebody said, oh, there's a lot of people's got that gift. <laughs> they know how to irritate somebody, including the preacher at times. I'm talking about me. And so, that, but that's what it means to provoke, incite, to spur on, stimulate, incite. Now, why would the believer need that? Why would that be necessary? Well, it would be necessary because nothing out here where we live and work and serve, I'm talking about our culture in which we live, Nothing is out there pushing you to be a godly person. As a matter of fact, everything about the culture and the direction of our culture would be anti-God and would be anti-Christ and would be a, an obstacle in our journey to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to love Him and to love others like we're supposed to love. I'm just saying, the conditions are not favorable out here. They never have been favorable since the fall. So that if God's people are going to make it, then God's people need to, give, need to give the attention to be concerned about somebody beside themselves and then engage themselves in provoking, exhorting, encouraging, enticing, even agitating people. Don't quit. Don't quit. You see somebody's been missing church. Why would you go texting your friend about it? You're not going to gossip about them, are you? Why don't you get a hold of them and provoke them to love and to good works? Well, I had a situation at church. No. Situations happen at church. I know many of you have heard this, but I can't help it. Do you ever think how thin the New Testament would be if churches didn't have problems. <laughs> I mean, a lot of what Paul wrote was to deal with not only doctrinal issues, but just proper conduct among the saints and among the flock and towards one another. Yeah. Well, I had this and that. Well, why don't you just say to somebody, you know, why don't you just forgive or why don't you go make it right? That's what the Bible says. Go talk to them and let's make it right and get on. There's a, yeah, but I, I tell you, I just don't even know if I want to go on. You'd stop following Jesus because one of somebody that calls his name is not what they ought to be. What kind of sense does that make? What have I said to my wife? I don't trust you anymore. I, I cannot trust you. Well, what do I do? You didn't do nothing, but I know a woman that did something. <laughs> she hadn't been true to her husband. So how do I know you'll be true to me? Somebody said, that's the most insane, silly, ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But a lot of people use that kind of stuff all the time against Jesus. I'm not going to follow Jesus because you're a jerk. Now, what's that got to do with anything? 
I said, what's that got to do with anything? What's that got to do with whether I'm devoted to Jesus Christ or not? If you're not following Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, then you can't point the finger to somebody else. It's just because you're making the conscious choice not to follow Jesus Christ. Nobody can keep you from following Jesus Christ if you want to follow Jesus Christ. But why don't we get past those little petty stuff and be one of those churches that wallow in pettiness? Why don't we just stay above that? And if you're there, move on beyond that and find somebody that that you can encourage and incite and uh, bring along somebody that you can provoke to do the right thing and to keep following Jesus, no matter what problem they're facing. That's, that's what he said. You know, um, I was looking here a while back and reminiscing in the little book that was given on uh, Double Honor Sunday and they had a page in there where they... Uh, gave a whole bunch of quotes that apparently I said quite often. Every preacher does that, you know, have say something. If you're there 20 years, having said it 795 times and get up again and say it like, I bet you never heard this before. So I probably had some of them. And one of them was when we dismiss tonight, find somebody and say a word of encouragement to them. Find somebody and be an encouragement to them. Find somebody and show them some love. That kind of thing. And one of those quotes was in there about that. Well, you know what? That's exactly what a Christian is supposed to be doing. If, if, if you, when the service is over, if you hightail it out of here and you can't get in your car soon enough because something's going on on the television or something else, don't you start blaming people that you don't have friends. Don't do that. Now, I don't even know anybody. Well, uh, you know, we don't do calf roping around here. If you're going to run from everybody, why don't you make it your business to know somebody? We don't do things to be known, but that's how you get known is you make it your business to be an encouragement, being a blessing to somebody. Well, I don't even know who they are. So they're a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. You have the same heavenly father. Jesus is your savior. You're a part of the same flock. You share the same shepherd. What, what's the deal here? See, so provoke unto love and good works. In other words, there are times that some people under the heavy burdens of life just need some stimulation. They need to be incited. They need to be provoked. That's what it means. Provoke. And I've come to this conclusion that none of us make this journey alone. My wife and I, we made a move and so she went through boxes and boxes of cards and notes and letters and Sandra and I came to this, uh, this conclusion. In fact, she told me this yesterday. She said, I'm glad that you're not the kind that gets discouraged easy, but if we were the kind that were easily discouraged, We've had enough encouragement and support from preachers around the country, from church people at Southwest Baptist Church, people at Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater. We have no excuse not to give Jesus Christ our best. Amen. That's the way I feel about it. Look at me a second. And there's somebody that may need you to come along and give them a push and provoke them to do the right thing. And if you said to them, why don't you go talk to that person with whom you have a problem? That is what Jesus said to do. That is what he said to do. Well, I just don't think it'd do any good. Still what he said to do. What, what we, and why don't we provoke people to do the right thing? Man, I've been missing you at church. Well, I this and that. Well, I mean, if it's legitimate things you have no control over, that's fine. But I'm just telling you right now, it's been my experience in my life that people that just start dropping out of church, pretty soon they're on the outside looking in and they're blaming people that are inside for why they're not there. I feel like sitting down and amen in myself if you wasn't sitting there, Brandon. Amen. So provoke unto love and good. Nobody makes this journey together. No, nobody is going to make it without the need to have that little push. Oh man, I shouldn't tell this story. Good night. I forgot to check with the other person in it. Let's see if I can tell it and you won't know who it is. <laughs> I once knew a little boy. He was about five years old and he lived in my house. <laughs> he called my wife mother and he's about five, four or five at that time. 
he's at that stage where driving down the road, he'd see a hill, you know, like I remember driving once through the Arbuckle uh, down I, uh, 35, the Arbuckle Mountains down there. And I remember hearing him say, hey, Dad, you think we could climb that? Oh, yeah, sure. I just let him believe that there ain't a mountain around that you and I couldn't climb. And so we went through that kind of thing. And finally, one day I, I had a Monday and I got my mom, my wife and that little boy. I got him in the car. We went over to the area where I was born in Fairview, Oklahoma, just north. Uh, many of you know on 412s, you go out toward Woodward and so forth, you go through the Glass Mountains. And you know you've gone through the Glass Mountains when you come to Slap Out. <laughs> yeah, Slap Out. But anyway, that's a long story. So anyway, it's out there. And these are interesting things. Well, my mom was born and raised out there, right in the almost the shadow of what they call Lone Peak, which is the first one as you're going west of these mountains. And I told my wife, I said, we're going to go out there and I'm going to take that boy up that mountain. And he was so excited. I mean, he and I was too. We were excited about it. We go over there. And so mom and my, my wife and my mom, they stayed at the car. He and I started up. We climbed this little fence, went down to the ditch, went up this little foothill, I call it a little foothill area. And then we started up. We got about maybe a third of the way up and we looked back and he said, hey, he called me dad. He said, hey, dad. He said, uh, look back there. I said, I looked back at the car. I said, yeah, there's mom and grandma. They were outside the car, standing there talking. And uh, he said, look at them. And I said, yeah. He said, they look small. They look small. I said, well, yeah, they're going to get smaller here in a little bit. And so I said, okay, let's go. So we went on a little ways. We got about three-fourths of the way up. And he said, uh, Dad, he looked around and said, I'm ready to go back down if you are. I said, oh, no, huh? no, no, we're not going down. We're going up. We're going to go all the way at the top. Oh, man, I can see the fear in the eye. And the next thing you know, we're three-fourths the way up or so. And I, and I mean, the tears started coming. I'm afraid. I want to go down. And I set him on a clump of grass. And I got his nose and my nose about that far apart. And I made him look me right in the eye. And I said, now, you listen to this. If I have to take my belt off and tie you to my body we are going all the way to the top. Do you understand that? Okay, okay. And so off we went. Well, we got right up the ledge and I got up there and I put him on my hand and I gave him a shove and he got all the way to the top. And it was a little difficult right there, you know, to navigate, but I got him up there and now he's on top and there's plenty of room on top. And so this flat top hill. And so I, I uh, could hear him up there and I went over here and grabbed a little brush and I pulled myself up and when I got up there, he is up there jumping up and down and raising his hands. And he came over and grabbed me around the waist and said, thanks, Dad, for making me go all the way. And I thought, you know, there are some people that would go all the way if somebody had come alongside and provoked them into love and good works. And I just thought about that because I'm going to heaven someday. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go be with the Lord. I believe I'm going to see a lot of people that have influenced and been an encouragement to my own life. And I just wonder, Pastor, I mean, I may be just dreaming a little bit, but I just wonder if I might go running around there and saying, I just want to thank you for helping me go all the way. I want to thank you for encouraging me to go all the way. I want to thank my pastor, Brother Dan Tidwell, who was relentless. And when I'd been backslidden and went to get right, he didn't say, we've been praying for you, boy. We love you, Sam. We're so proud of you. No, he didn't say that. He set me down and ripped my face off for about 20 minutes. Told me what a loser I'd been for being backslidden, living in the kind of home, having the kind of girlfriend I had, having all the advantages I had, and I'd been running from God. He told me how terrible that was, and I just broken and got down and got right with God. I'm going to find Dan Tidwell and say, thank you for not tippy-toeing around and making sure that I knew I was loved. You told me what I was. I was a rebel against God. I was going against the will of God. Thank you for helping me go all the way. I, I, I believe that kind of stuff's going to happen. And you can be that to somebody. You can be that to somebody. You look at people that have been encouragement to you and being encouragement to you and being encouragement to you. Well, I just want to ask you, have you ever thought about turning that around and making sure you're being a blessing to somebody else by considering them and provoking them unto love and good works and exhorting them? Isn't exhort and provoke the same thing? It can almost be. 
But this case it's not. Because you know how the First uh, Thessalonians 4, you know, talking about uh, we'll be caught up together with him because so shall we ever be with the Lord. And you remember how he comes down at the end of that uh, chapter 4 in verse 17? He says, What? Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Interesting thing. The word comfort in First Thessalonians 4, exhort in Hebrews chapter 10, same word. So exhort can mean, come on, let's go get it. It can mean that. Or it can mean like comfort means to come alongside and say, I know you're in pain. I know you're having trouble. I know you're grieving. I know you are. I can just tell you by experience, the comfort of God's people in times of grief is amazing. And necessary. Just to come alongside somebody. I think if you talk to the Krakens, have you heard from anybody? Does anybody even care that your mother has passed? I'm quite sure I know the answer to that. Sure. I can remember when my dad died, when I was pastor at Stillwater. Uh, Brother McCracken knew the family and everything. I can remember when my dad died. And I just remember my wife and I looking at each other, amazed at the way that God's people. We just came here about a year, and her mother died. We'd only been here about a year, and her mom died. And we couldn't hardly get to all the people in the church building back in our hometown because so many people from Southwest came just to stand by her, by us, Amen. and just come alongside, say the right words. I could go to people in this congregation right now. My eyes are falling on some, but I would miss some too. They just seem to know what to say. Well, it doesn't have to be a deep theological thing. It doesn't have to be a fancy quote. It doesn't have to be something anybody else will use, but you can feel it from the heart like you could feel that song from the heart a while ago. And it just helps. Helps what? Take the next step. Keep going. Keep following Jesus. I'm just, I'm just saying, as you look around our culture, as you look around the world, as you see world events shaping up, is there anything to make us believe that there is a day approaching that probably we should be ready for? Uh, yeah. No, I'm not talking about this sign, that sign, that sign, but just the whole spirit of Antichrist that's prevalent in our own culture, in our world. Yay, go to some, where some of our missionaries are, and they can tell you something about the spirit of Antichrist, a hostile spirit towards the gospel of Jesus, our Savior. Yeah, you can do that. You can tell somebody. I wish I knew how to pray for you better, but I am praying for you. You can tell somebody, if you mean it sincerely, I have no idea what I could do to help, but if there's anything, let me know. Till then, I'm praying. Come on. Uh, you, know, you know about all it takes is to get focus off of self and consider one another, how we might encourage them along and console them as they go through the scars and the pains and the hurts of life. Because the day is approaching. Father, you know the need of every life in this room. I don't have my thumb on the pulse beat of the flock as a whole, as I hope I once did as the pastor. But I know that this flock has a faithful pastor. And I know that among this flock, oh God, there are some that need. They need. They need for somebody to consider that I'm here and I'm trying to find my way. They need to, at the same time, consider that I may be thinking too much about myself and I should be giving attention to others. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. And then 19 characteristics follow. The first of which is men shall be lovers of their own selves. 
Oh God, may that spirit of self-love to the neglect of others, may that not, may that not prevail in the lives of the people of this congregation or in the congregation as a whole. Help us, O oh Lord, just to take the simple advice of the Apostle Paul, who can go doctrinally deep, who can stretch our thinking and make us study and labor and depend on your Holy Spirit for understanding. But as we look and anticipate a big event, the next big event, as, as we see things aligning that aren't gonna be fulfilled until after the rapture. But we can see things lining up. Shouldn't that make us anticipate even more the coming of your son? May self-centered people consider others. May we each seek wisdom from you to provoke unto love and good works. May we be quick to comfort those that are under the heavy burdens of grief and the heavy burdens of life. Oh God, help us to care. Help us to care like you care for us. How big is God? He's big enough to fill the universe. He inhabits eternity. And yet he lives within our heart. May your presence so affect our heart that we would care like you care. We would give like you give, gave and give. Oh God, use this invitation now. You know the need, I don't. I pray that your Holy Ghost would be at work. Your purposes would be accomplished among this flock tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?